Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Do you ever feel you're like on complete information overload, ladies and gentlemen? You don't know where to turn sometimes to deal with what's being thrown at you on the internet, what's being thrown at you and the culture. There are so many issues, so many topics. How's a Christian supposed to think, for example, about the environment, about poverty, about guns and violence, about immigration, about artificial intelligence? And then the more common issues we deal with, the issues regarding sex, homosexuality, transgender ideology, pornography, abortion. What about bullying? What about suicide? What about assisted suicide? What about racial tensions, loneliness, politics, entertainment, drugs and addiction? Where can you go to get clear biblical thinking on on issues like this, especially if you're a young person? Where can you go? Well, we have just the place you can go. It's a new book written by my friend, Dr. Sean McDowell. Many of you know who Sean is. He's been on this program several times before. Uh, He also has a podcast of his own called Think Biblically. He is a professor at Biola University. He is also a professor at our online Christian courses online university. Uh, He is uh, seen at seanmcdowell.org. That's his website. And the brand new book that he has just written, which is great because it covers all these issues in short chapters, uh, and it covers the essentials of what you need to know on these issues. The new book is called A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and love amid the noise of today's world. There's a lot of noise in today's world. It's always great to have Sean on the program. Sean, how are you? Frank, I'm good, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, absolutely. Now, I, I got I to gotta ask you about this title, A Rebel's Manifesto. <laughs> what's the title about? Yeah, I love what's behind that. You're thinking, Sean, when rebel comes to mind, you're not the first person I think of. <laughs> and that's totally true. And I was reading this article recently, a journal article about the history of rock and roll. Mm-hmm. Going back to the 50s, some of rock was protesting against racial injustice in the 60s against the conservative establishment, in the 70s against war. Rock in the tone, in the dress, in the words has been a form of protest and rebellion. But culturally speaking, rock and roll has lost its influence probably in the earlier 2000s, maybe the 90s is when it really started Mm -hmm. to fade. And so it got me thinking, what does it mean to rebel today? Well, it's not only rock stars who had a platform, now with social media, everybody has a platform. That's right. Yeah. And everybody's trying to shout and provoke and cancel. That's the norm of how we engage in culture today. And so I started thinking, what does it mean to be a rebel today? Well, it's no longer what it was in the past. The rebel's actually somebody who says, I'm going to hear out your position. I'm going to be sympathetic and kind towards you. I'm going to find common ground but I'm not going to compromise what is true. In a sense, that's a lot what Jesus did. He was uncompromising in truth. As you know, he died for it, but he had a kindness and he had a graciousness 
that I'm calling people, in particular young people, to rebel in that new way. To rebel against the cancel culture, against the aggressiveness and unkindness of today's culture? Is that, is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah, that's exactly right. The divisiveness, the cancel culture. And the other thing is people are just so quick to come to opinions. They see one TikTok video, they watch one YouTube video, <laughs> make up their mind and think everybody else is an idiot. Well, in this book, I'm not telling everybody exactly how to think on all these issues, but I'm trying to frame them, trying to give them some biblical teaching, trying to advance the conversation so they can see the issues that matter on the topics you mentioned and then let's think about this. As Christians, we're called to love God with our minds. I, you know, the point that people seem to make today is that if you don't have an immediate comment on a major event in our culture, something's wrong with you. Silence is violence. Mm. You know, they say this kind of thing. And so much of the stuff we see in our culture, I don't have enough information on to know where I stand because all the facts aren't in. And yet there's such pressure, it seems, Sean, to be... Mm. Uh, at least on social media, to have an opinion and the right opinion immediately. Uh, I don't think we were built for that. Do you? No, I don't think we were built for that. I think social media, I love it. I use it. But in some ways, it can bring out the worst oh, in yeah. us in terms of the way we treat people. I mean, half the people that follow me on YouTube and Twitter don't even have their names on their profiles. Some guy yesterday, was his name was literally B.S. Lewis, which I thought was kind of funny and just gave the guy some props. He's obviously a skeptic, but right. I don't know who this guy is. It's not even his face, uh -huh. right? Whereas my face is on there, so it depersonalizes. And we see a tweet we like and retweet it without taking the time to think and study and reflect and just give an opinion that still might be wrong. We're all going to get stuff wrong, mm -hmm. but this rush to have an opinion and judge people who don't see the world the way we do it's just unhealthy and it's it's just, it doesn't help. Yeah, I find social media in, in terms of its, its efficacy to get forth an opinion or an idea, that's okay, but it's not a really good place to debate issues, right? How do you mm. debate in 200 characters or whatever Twitter is now, right? It, it, it's, it's not a debate forum, but people use it as that. And that's why it's reduced to ad hominem attacks all the time. It's just... They start calling you names. In fact, one of the chapters you have in the new book is on bullying. And, mm. and I know that happens online all the time. Tell us a little bit about what's in that chapter on bullying, Sean. That was one of the hardest chapters to write because there's three people, three different groups of people involved in bullying. There's those who bully, there's those who are bullied, and there's bystanders. Mm -hmm. And I have almost never been bullied in my life. I could count on my hands. And probably as a kid, I found ways to just defend myself and not have to deal with that. As far as I remember, if someone wants to call me out and tell me I'm wrong, I don't remember ever bullying somebody. That's just not my approach to life. But I remember times in high school, a friend of mine was being bullied by a football player. And I watched it. And I didn't stop and say anything. I think I was probably a junior or sophomore in high school. And I really felt terrible about that. And I remember watching that saying, you know what? That's never going to happen on my watch again. Whether this guy pummels me, no matter what he does, I should have stood up for this guy. And so writing this chapter was just rethinking through a lot of the ways, gosh, I've fallen short in my own life, but also asking the question, how do we help those who've been bullied? But what does it mean to love the bully? 
Like we don't ask that question. Now that means standing up for truth. That means stopping somebody, right? But I went to a friend of mine who was bullied so uh, deeply in high school. People would pin stuff on his back. The chapter opens with him talking about really being at the point of taking his life. Mm -hmm. That's how profound it was for him. So it's not only online, it's offline. And when I was a kid, if somebody's bullied, they could go home and get away from it. Now it just gets exacerbated because it's nonstop and more people pile on. It's a real issue. And I think one last thing I'll say about this, Frank, why, why is bullying such an issue? Well, if you don't learn to love people and be loved in turn, a response is to use people and bullying them. So a lot of this bullying is in some ways an indication of just how broken our culture is. In fact, this is one of my talks on cancel culture. I say, why are people so quick to cancel others? Because they've been canceled in their own life. They've never learned how to love. So that phenomenon of canceling, that phenomenon of bullying in many ways is an indication of just how broken our culture is and how much we don't know how to love. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned this, Sean, a couple of years ago when my dad was dying. I remember driving him home from one of his medical treatments and he was sitting in the right seat and I'm driving and he's crying. It's an 83 year old man mm. crying because of when he was in high school, the kid was bullied. He didn't do anything about it. And later the, the kid committed suicide. I mean, it was just one of the things that, that was on his heart that he needed to get off his heart before he died. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek. My guest is Dr. Sean McDowell. His new book is Rebels Manifesto. There's a lot more to talk about right after the break. Don't go anywhere. We're back in just two minutes. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turek, on the American Family Radio Network. Our website is crossexamine.org, crossexamine with a D on the end of it. My guest today is Dr. Sean McDowell, seanmcdowell.org. And speaking of 83-year-old men, Sean, your dad just had a birthday a few couple days ago. And I think I've told you this before, and I've told our audience before. I became a Christian by reading two books, Evidence Demands a Verdict and More Than a Carpenter. Mm. Uh, back around 1985. And not long ago, you and your dad actually updated both those books, didn't you? We did. Yeah, this is honestly one of my great joys just to honor my dad by updating more than a carpenter. It's actually been over a, a decade now. We were just talking last week about doing a, a final update and version of that. And then evidence was maybe five years ago now it came out, but that got book of the year in one of its categories, which for me was just a way of honoring my dad. But it's amazing how much those books have been used by skeptics and by Christians worldwide over the past probably 40, 50 years. Mm. You know, you and I are both fans of superhero movies. Uh, my son and I just wrote a book a few months ago called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And you actually mentioned uh, uh, some Marvel and DC movies in the new book, uh, Rebels Manifesto. But I don't know if you saw this, Sean, just a few days ago, Tom Holland, who, as you know, plays Spider-Man, 26-year-old UK guy, um, just decided to get off Instagram because it wasn't good for his mental health. Have you seen this? I haven't followed the particulars of it, but yeah. we're seeing more and more people do that. Uh -huh. And I think it's the mental health, the amount of time. 
and also just the comments that people make. And you think of somebody loved as much as Tom Holland. I mean, he can't have that many critics. Uh So you think about somebody, one of the most famous people in the world, who's beloved as an actor, who has Mm -hmm. everything people would think would make you happy, Mm -hmm. is like, I'm getting out of here because of mental health. Mm. That should be a big sign to anybody else who's trying to build a platform like that, that if that's what you think is going to make you happy and significant, it's like chasing your tail. Yeah. um, In fact, in the movies, in Iron Man, we've talked about this before. Here's Tony Stark, who has everything you'd think you'd want to have if you were a a person searching happiness, searching for happiness. He has the big three. He has sex, money, and power, right? Mm. But he's unhappy. He's got no identity. He's got no ultimate purpose. He has everything to live with and nothing to live for. What does that say about our culture, Sean? When you have somebody like a Tom Holland, who at 26 years old seems to have the world by the tail. He's got everything you would think you would want. He's got fame. He's got fortune. I don't know about his personal relationships, but apparently something's not quite right. Why is that? Well, it tells us that Solomon was right 3,000 years ago. Number one, when he said there's nothing new under the sun. But number two, what did Solomon have? He had, Mm -hmm. I I always confuse, 300 wives, 700 concubines or the reverse. He obviously had power. He had great food. He had peace in the land. He had everything. Money, plenty of that. Money, yeah. Can't forget, obviously, the money and the gold. Mm -hmm. And you know what? He's like, it's all like just a vapor in, you know, in the wind, in the air, vanity of vanities. So that's the same predicament that humans have been wrestling since the dawn of time. The difference now is with social media, everybody thinks they're one big video, one big post away from becoming a rock star. So it feels more tangible to people, which I think arguably increases the temptation of it because there's not a lot of people who think oh you know i'm the next tom brady you know maybe one out of fifty thousand people think that but everybody else thinks oh i could get a million likes i could grow a platform i could have all these things that's the lure of social media that i think can be so dangerous well in the book rebels manifesto you have a section on culture and the first chapter in that section is called smartphones and social media and i think that parents in particular struggle with this. How much access do I give my teenager or even my preteen to a smartphone, to the internet, to social media? What do you say about that? Well, my son was 14 and a half when he got a smartphone. My daughter was the last person in her junior high at a Christian school to get a smartphone and one of the last ones to get Instagram. And I love my kids, but they let us know a few times that we were horrible parents and (laughs) the worst ones on the planet. Mm -hmm. And I just know the stats about mental health. I've heard too many stories. And so we waited. Now, I never told my kids, when you're 13, you can have a phone. This one thing my parents did. They never said, when you're 16, you can drive. They said, when you're 16, you can drive if we trust you, if you have your grades up, if you are still engaged in the family and you're going to handle this car well. And so I encourage parents to say, don't tell your kids they can get their phone at 13. Maybe give them a minimal time, but then have some criteria they have to keep before they get it. And then for a long time, COVID really messed things up. You know, my son was turning his phone in at nine at night, not getting it until later. 
building in some tech-free time and tech-free space, uh, dinner time, driving in the car, at home together, et cetera, building in those boundaries are, are really important. What is the danger? Uh, I know that you have a section in here on transgender ideology, and I know that you quote, as I've quoted many times before as well, Abigail Schreier's book uh, about the transgender craze. A lot of young girls are being sucked into the transgender world, claiming they're trans, and it is completely social media driven. So where do we draw the line on that, Sean? How do we, how do we protect our young, impressionable girls in particular from being sucked into that on social media? Well, I think we have to do a few things. Number one, we've got to make sure we build relationships early with our kids. That is one of the greatest defenses we have to some of the bad ideas and culture is relationship with our kids. All the studies, I had Christian Smith on my YouTube channel a while ago, and he's been studying parents and millennials and Gen Z and other generations since the early 70s. And he says the number one influence on a kid is the parents. Mm -hmm. It's not social media. It's not the educational system. It's not Netflix, et cetera. It's parents. And the most significant way we do this is by modeling it in our life and having genuine spiritual conversations with our kids. So we need to talk about these kinds of issues before they hit in culture. I talk with my kids about this all the time. If something pops up in a Marvel film, you know, the Doctor Strange film, the girl's wearing an LGBTQ pride flag, I'll just ask my kids about it. Hey, why do you think they put it in there? Would you wear that if you were acting in this? Uh, what do you think about the shift Marvel has taken recently? Like, what are you learning in school? Like these kinds of conversations I'm having frequently. But you're right. When it comes to girls who have what's called rapid onset gender dysphoria, there's a high percentage of autism of people. There's a high percentage of friends who also have this. It spreads like a social contagion. And there's a deep influence of social media. So we've got to have boundaries and be very aware of what our kids are watching uh, because that is impacting them. We all know that fatherlessness is a problem. It's the number one uh, moral problem uh, that affects kids. When they don't have a father, they wind up in much worse, uh, with what, much worse outcomes. However, I was doing a little research recently, Sean, and uh, discovered that even in families that have fathers at home, uh, a father, on average, will spend 30 minutes per week in meaningful conversations with their children, particularly their sons, yet that same kid is going to spend 44 hours per week either mm. on his phone, on social media, or playing video games. So do we still think that a parent is going to be able, in 30 minutes of meaningful conversation, to have more influence on that kid than 44 hours of screen time? That's a great way to put it. Now you add church in that. How much mm -hmm. is church a week? I don't know, maybe yeah. an hour and a half right. at most, mm -hmm. maybe. So in terms of quantity, there's no competition. Yeah, I think there's still a quality there for intentional parents mm -hmm. who are going to engage their kids to frame the way they watch social media, frame the way they engage with movies that can, I think, override that, so to speak. But look, Paul says in Romans 12 too, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Our kids will naturally be conformed to the ideas of the culture if we don't intentionally 
help them see things Christianly. In fact, the default way when Paul says conformed is that, that in a sense, or Jesus, Paul says this, we're kind of like sheep, which the point Jesus made that we just naturally follow the pattern set up in culture. But if we think differently about this, then we can avoid being conformed to the things of the world. So parents have to be very intentional. Last night, my daughter's like, will you take me to the gym to go play volleyball? And inside, I was like, oh man, I'm tired right now. But I thought my daughter wants to spend time with me. This gives me 45 minutes. We might not have a deep conversation, but I'm there and I'm present and we're connecting. You better believe I'm setting other stuff aside to spend time with my 15-year-old daughter. I'm Mm -hmm. in. We've so got to prioritize that stuff. You didn't spike the idea then, huh? Okay. <laughs> All right. So you, in the Rebels Manifesto, you've got a, a section on sex, and one chapter covers sex, another homosexuality, another transgender ideology, then pornography, and then abortion. Um, I, we had Brett Kunkel on the show last week for a segment, and he said the number one question he gets when he's speaking from young people are the sex questions. And Sean, there's nobody better, I think, out there than you at dealing with these issues. You've had several conversations on your YouTube channel, several conversations on your podcast with people who disagree with you on these issues, people who are LGBTQ+, uh, uh, they're, they're pro that kind of behavior. How do, you, how do you deal with this issue when a young person comes up to you and says, well, I know what the Bible says, but why would God be against two people that want to love one another of the same sex? So first off, I'm going to just practically ask a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. I want to know. Jesus asked a ton of questions. Paul asked 262 questions. Just strategically in relationship with the young person, I want to ask questions. So I'd probably say, hey, tell me how long you've been thinking about this. Mm-hmm. I might say, if you had to guess why God designed it this way, what would you say? I might say, do you think kids need a mom and a dad? One of the most popular Instagram posts I've done, I did a blog on it, was what would the world be like if everybody lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? Mm -hmm. That's a great question, Frank. And of course, with young people, you have to define what that is, that there's singleness, no sexual activity. If you're married, it's one person of the opposite sex, and you're faithful to that person. So I'll ask this young person, say, what do you think the world would be like? The same, better, or worse? If everybody lived the sexual ethic of Jesus, no abortion, no STDs, the world is way better. In fact, let's unpack that further right after the break. You're listening to Sean McDowell. He's my guest today. Uh, And we are on the program and the podcast called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Our website is crossexamine.org. My name is Frank Turek. Sean's website is seanmcdowell.org. Check it out there. We're back in two. Ladies and gentlemen, on August 26th and 27th, that's a Friday night, Saturday morning, I'll be at Arise Church in Brandon, Florida. That's right outside of Tampa. We're going to be doing the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist uh, material apologetics conference Friday night, Saturday morning. Then I'll be speaking at the Sunday services there in Brandon, Florida. Check that out on our website, crossexamined.org. Also want to mention, and this has been actually years in the making, that we're about to release, in fact, one of the curricula is already released, a curriculum that covers virtually every 
aspect or every age for the I don't have enough faith to be an atheist material. You already know that the book I don't have enough faith to be an atheist has been out for several years and we have a DVD set called Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. That covers everybody from, say, high school on up. But now we've got two curriculum that are dealing with ages earlier than that. For, for grades two to five, we have a new curriculum out called Yes, God is Real. It's written by myself and Hannah Sims, one of our CIA grads, Cross-Examined Instructor Academy grads. That is available right now. And in about uh, two or three weeks, the material or the curriculum for ages, or I should say grades six to eight, uh, is called Let's Get Real, Examining the Evidence for God. That's actually going to be an online course as well. So it's going to start here in September. The great Shanda Fulbright, who uh, also has a podcast herself, is a CIA grad as well, is the co-teacher on that with myself. It's called, again, Let's Get Real, Examining the Evidence for God. So that's kind of like middle school, junior high, sixth grade to eighth grade. Go to crossexamine.org, click on resources, and then you'll see apologetics curriculum. All the apologetics curriculum for every grade level will be under that tab. Click on resources, apologetics curriculum. You'll see it there. You'll see online courses there. You'll see hard copies that you can get. So now we're going to be able to teach the material and sort of the method we go through to show that Christianity is true at virtually every grade level. So check it out, crossexamine.org, resources, apologetics, curriculum. All right, back to my friend Sean McDowell, his brand new book, the, A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice, and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. Sean, before the break, we were discussing this issue of sex, and you posed a great question. What would be the what would the world be like if everyone lived the sexual ethic of Jesus Unpack that a little bit further. What what would the world be like if everyone lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? So here's why I ask this question. I think the big question when it comes to sexuality for Christian and non-Christian kids is not if they think God exists, but do they think that God is good? Do mm. they think that God is good? Because there's going to be commandments that especially a young person can't fully understand. But if they think God is good and has their interest in heart— then they might be more inclined to listen, even if it doesn't make sense. So, for example, Deuteronomy 10, Moses says, follow these commandments the Lord God has given you with your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength for your own good. Psalms 19, David says he rejoices in the law of the Lord. It's interesting, when you go back to the garden, I've always wondered, and I pose this question to students, I'll say, why do you think God gave the command not to eat fruit? Why didn't he say, Adam, one command, uh, don't kill Eve? Like that would be easy, right? Why not to eat fruit? Put it in the middle of the garden, which is designed to be eaten. And I think the best answer is that if the infinite is going to be in relationship with the finite, the creator with the created, there's going to have to be a point where we trust God and listen, even when we don't understand. So in my speaking with students, I want to draw back and ask them if they believe God is good. Now, then when I translate that so they get it, I'll say, okay, let's imagine if God's teachings are for our good and our flourishing, what would the world be like if people actually lived it out? Would we objectively be better and flourish more or not if people lived the sexual ethic of Jesus? Which again, singleness is a way of honoring God and others. And if you're single, you're not sexually active. 
If you're married, as our friend Greg Kogel says, it's one man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Mm -hmm. You are faithful to that person in marriage. So I'll ask this to students, either individually or as groups. And over time, students will go, well, there'd be no sexually transmitted diseases. There'd be no divorce. There'd be no abortion. There'd be no sex abuse. There'd be no pornography. It becomes very clear that objectively the world would be a better place, which I think helps students just kind of put some meat on the bones of the scriptural teaching that God is good and translate it to real life and and begin to say, oh, now I see why God has a design for marriage. Mm. You know, the converse question can also be asked too. What would happen to the world if everyone lived, say, even Mm. faithfully in same-sex relationships, right? It, it would yeah. be the end of civilization in a generation or two. <laughs> so just looking at it that way shows that, yeah, there is a design to the man-woman relationship. Without it, we wouldn't exist, quite obviously. And as you point out, Sean, and I know you do in the book Rebels Manifesto, that everything turns out for the better in human flourishing when a man and a woman do come together and bring up their children in that kind of environment. Uh, so absolutely, I think kids also need to know the why before they know just the, the mm. what, right? But what's the why behind this? What's the why behind being faithful uh, to one person in a marriage relationship? What is the why of that, Sean? Why should we do that? Well, one thing about – well, so here's the biggest reason. The biggest why is in First Peter where Peter says, be holy because I am holy. A lot of our teachings on sexual purity has been about what we get from it, which is anthropocentric. Mm -hmm. I think we need to shift this and say the biggest why is because God is holy and we're called to love God and love other people with our bodies. That's the biggest why. Now, when we begin to translate to our human relationships, one why is because freedom comes from commitment. Freedom comes from commitment. We tend to think freedom's doing whatever I want without restraint. Nobody's telling me how to live my life. But that's not freedom. I mean, this is why cohabiting relationships are different qualitatively speaking than marriages. There's more physical abuse at times. There's more argument. There's more cheating as a whole in cohabiting relationships than there is in marital relationships. And that's not to say no marital relationships have that and every cohabiting relationship does. That's not my point. But statistically speaking, there's a difference. And one of the things I point out to my friends who are in favor of cohabiting, I say, you think that living with somebody ahead of time is like a sample or simulation of what marriage is going to be like. But it's not. It's lacking the very thing that makes marriage work, which is commitment. So if my wife and I are frustrated with each other, we have an issue we're trying to work out, we know we're committed to each other for life. Mm-hmm. So that brings a kind of uh, a freedom in a sense to each other to love each other through these challenges. If you're in a cohabiting relationship, you can walk out the door in a moment. There is no bigger commitment. So ironically, it's God's design that says don't have sex before marriage. When you're married, stay committed to your spouse. Don't have sex with anybody else. That sets you free to love and be loved back in accordance with how God has designed our hearts to experience love. 
You also have a chapter in here on the transgender ideology issue, Sean. We talked a little bit about that already, but what specifically is in the chapter on transgender ideology in the new book, Rebels Manifesto? Well, I'm trying to make some distinctions for for students. Number Mm -hmm. one, there's a distinction between somebody who's wrestling with trans Mm -hmm. and there's a distinction with the trans ideology itself. So what we have to help young people realize is almost all young people now, this is a personal issue. It's not just a TV show. They have friends, whether in person or online. We need to love human beings wrestling with gender dysphoria as we would anybody else. But there are certain, there's a kind of transgender ideology. And I always use terms like that with somewhat hesitance, but there's a worldview that is being promoted we have Disney admit that they're trying to promote certain ideas. It's coming all through Netflix. It's all over social media. It's in the educational system. It's everywhere. So how do we love our neighbors, but make a distinction with ideas that are in conflict with a Christian worldview? So I'm trying to help students walk through and say, what does it mean to be human? Well, in a Christian worldview, we are body and we are soul. We're both. And God calls us consistently in scripture to live with our body in congruence with our soul, so to speak, because that's objectively who we are. Our culture has increasingly said your mind or your thinking can trump the body and your body's not a part of who you are. But I find it very interesting. Romans 12, it says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice. But then it says, offer your bodies as a sacrifice because our bodies are a part of who we are. So just trying to make some of these careful distinctions to help young people follow truth, but be loving towards their friends who see the world differently or who are maybe wrestling with gender dysphoria. As we said before, ladies and gentlemen, transgenderism presupposes fixed genders because if I'm a man and I think I'm a woman, I have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman Mm -hmm. is to know the difference. Also, if I want to make the so-called transition, I also have to have some idea what a man is and some idea what a woman is. And Sean, this has just come out recently now. We've been talking about this for a while, but I've seen some people in the LGB community, not the T, now say we can't deal with the trans people anymore in the sense that we can't deal with their ideology because if their ideology wins the day, we don't exist. If there are no genders, there's no such thing as a lesbian, gay, or bisexual person. And so now there's a bit of a civil war going on in that community because transgender ideology erases lesbians, gays, bisexuals, and also women, by the way, because if there are no if there are no genders, there are no women, there are no women's rights. I was just reading a case, uh, I got to make sure I get this right, of a woman who is in a lesbian relationship with another woman. Mm -hmm. One of the partners changed her gender to male. I saw that, yeah. And so the girl who's in a relationship with her, if she recognizes that she's male, now her identity changes to either (laughs) right right, heterosexual (laughs) or bi. Uh But if she doesn't recognize it, then she's denying the identity of her friend. Mm -hmm. And I thought, what a bizarre just kind of trap to be caught in. But these are the kinds of things that happen when we begin to reject objective truth. And what's interesting, for lack of a better metaphor, there's really strange bedfellows. You have people like Bill Maher calling out some of this craziness, who's obviously an atheist, Mm -hmm. critical of Christianity. 
I had someone on my YouTube channel you mentioned earlier who described herself as one of the original lesbian YouTubers, and she's critical of a lot of trans ideology. It's a strange moment that we find ourselves yeah, in. Yeah, Bill Maher said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a pirate. It's a good thing that my parents didn't take me for eyeball removal and peg leg surgery. <laughs> so he's pointing out the truth here. This is madness. A lot more with Dr. Sean McDowell in his new book, A Rebel's Manifesto, right after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with me, Frank Turk, on the American Family Radio Network, back in two. We're talking to Sean McDowell. His new book, Rebels Manifesto, covers so many topics in a short, succinct way. In fact, let's talk about one we don't talk a lot about on this program. Sean, you got a chapter in here on guns and violence. What about gun control? What, 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 are, your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I got to be honest. This is a hard chapter to write. I had to read a lot and talk to a lot of people because I could probably count on my hand the number of times I've even shot a gun. Uh-huh. I don't have a big stake in this. So I was trying to rather, I'm not writing a culture warrior book. Right. I'm basically saying, okay, Christians, what biblical principles apply here? Mm-hmm. How do we approach this? And what are some practical solutions we could find moving forward? So obviously the Bible doesn't talk about guns, but there's a debate about self-defense, about when we lay down our life for others. That's a piece of the gun control debate. But one of the things I do is I walk through certain myths on both sides of this. For example, the idea of people will say, well, violence never fixes anything. I'm like, "Uh, violence fixed World War II. (laughs) That's right. Thank God for guns and violence Mm -hmm. in that circumstance or we'd all be speaking German, Mm -hmm. right? And then others will say, well, guns don't kill people. People do. Well, people kill others through guns. And the question is, what kind of guns is it reasonable to allow people to have? I mean, we all put a limit somewhere. I don't want my neighbor having a tank or a nuclear or a rocket launcher, yeah. right? <laughs> nuclear weapon so, or something. Yeah. yeah I mean, right. at some point we have to have right. limits. Uh-huh. So these kinds of statements rule the day. And I'm just saying, okay, let's take a step back. And I think we go too far when we start to just try to limit and restrict the Second Amendment. But on the flip side, guns can become an idol for people. So I just want to help Christians be more thoughtful about this Mm -hmm. and approach it biblically. So are you dealing, you're not dealing with the Second Amendment necessarily in the book. You're dealing more with the idea of self-defense in the book. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I hint at at the Second Amendment, but even that, there's a huge debate about Mm -hmm. what that means. Even amongst legal scholars, I had no idea about it when it was written, how it applies to today, the type of gun. This is just a more complex issue than these little slogans often settle it. But one point to realize is on the left and the right as a whole, most people don't want gun violence and school shootings. That seems obvious, but they differ over the best way to get there. Some would say we got to get rid of guns that'll fix it. Others will say, no, the more people have guns, the less likely it's Mm -hmm. going to happen. Well, this is where the facts matter. What happens in states where there's more guns? What happens in states where there's more gun control and laws? Let's just look at the facts so we can actually help make progress on this issue. Yeah. And we're not going to solve the issue here, but if guns were the real problem, uh, we wouldn't have an increase in school shootings 
just because of guns, because the nation's always had guns, right? It's not, it's not like it's a new variable. Oh, now we got guns. Now that's why we have, we have more school shootings because we have guns. No, I think we have more, more school shootings because of probably other factors than just guns. But we're not going to solve that issue here. But you do cover it, uh, at least from a Christian perspective, in the book, Rebels Manifesto. Now, this issue we've talked about a lot on the program lately, Sean, because of the Roe v. Wade situation. You have a chapter here on abortion. What do you cover there? Well, I want to do a couple things for people. I want to help them think about this biblically. Is scripture pro-life? And it unequivocally is. There's been Mm -hmm. a lot of voices recently of people trying to argue that the scriptures are pro-choice, which I think is crazy. But second, let's walk through a case for life without even using the Bible through, you know, what's called natural law. And it's a real simple way to do this is humans get human rights. Mm -hmm. The right to life is a human right. The unborn is human. Therefore, the unborn has a right to life. I didn't use scripture. I didn't even, I didn't use the Bible at all. That's a secular kind of argument that's so simple. And we need to equip Christians to understand this. I can't tell you how many times I speak, I know this is true for you, to college kids who are Christian, high school kids, I'll give a simple pro-life talk and they'll be like, wow, this is the first time I've heard this. Well, here's a kid, if they get pregnant unexpectedly or impregnate a girlfriend and don't have those convictions, that's one reason why we see so many self-proclaimed Christians even having abortions. So I want to equip people to think Christianly about this, but also, Frank, I want to show a lot of grace. One of the things that I've learned is there are a whole lot of people in Christian circles who feel like this is the unforgivable sin and carry around the burden and hurt of this for years Mm -hmm. and decades. Mm -hmm. And it's just painful. So I want anybody who's listening to this or who reads my book, who's had an experience in abortion to know this is not the unforgivable sin. Jesus loves you. Jesus forgives you. And there is freedom in coming to him. Whenever you talk about the issue, you've got to point out that this sin, like other sins, can be completely forgiven by Christ. So those of you out there that have had an abortion or encouraged an abortion, there's forgiveness under the blood of Christ. By the way, Sean, I don't know if you saw this. I just saw it last night. Our mutual friend, Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, was on Joe Rogan earlier this week. And Rogan tried to put the screws to him over, what if my 14-year-old daughter was raped? And what Seth did, to his credit, was he said, look, this is a very emotional issue, but here is my reasoning, the reasoning you just pointed out, the reasoning that our mutual friend Scott Klusendorf has said, it's wrong to intentionally take the life of an innocent human being. An unborn child is an innocent human being, therefore it's wrong to take the life of an unborn child. Abortion is wrong. And he stuck to that. And he said, I don't think two wrongs make a right. I don't think you're going to solve uh, a pregnancy of a 14-year-old by killing the child. Why should we punish the child for the sin of the father, right? Mm. He stuck to that. And Rogan eventually sort of agreed with him. Rogan eventually wow. said, well, I see your reasoning here. At least he said that. I don't know if he said, I agree with you. But Stick to that argument. In fact, say it again, Sean, because you said it more succinctly than I did. Uh, Humans get human rights. The right to life is a human right. The unborn is human. 
Therefore, the unborn has a right to life. And the only argument around this that's getting traction now is people say, no, a woman's right to bodily autonomy trumps uh, the right to life of the unborn. And I have two issues with this. Number one, autonomy technically means self-rule, auto-rule. But when you're pregnant, how many people are relying upon the woman's body? Every obstetrician knows there's two patients when a woman is pregnant. Mm -hmm. So if a woman who's pregnant decides to have an abortion, this is not autonomy. It's not self-rule. It's other rule. So the autonomy argument in principle fails. Second, if two human beings are vying, for lack of a better word, or depending on the woman's body, why does the mother get to choose? Why does she get to pick instead of the unborn? Mm -hmm. If you go with the mother, you're going with the one who's more powerful and you're ignoring the voice of the powerless and marginalized and vulnerable. And I'm pretty sure most people today, especially those on the left, don't want to be on that side. Mm, Yeah. Abortion harms the most vulnerable among us. And how we treat our children tells us really all we need to know about our culture. It was Ronald Reagan who famously said, I've noticed all those in favor of abortion are already born. (laughs) Uh, In any event, Sean, let's just do one more topic real quickly here. And this is, again, uh, this is one that is Christians are struggle with a little bit is this issue of immigration in a rebels manifesto, Mm. this brand new book you have, which is great, especially for young people. You have a chapter on this. Give us a a minute or two on that. Well, there's, there's somewhat of a tension here. Number one is that governments can rightly and should protect their borders Mm -hmm. for those inside for a range of reasons that open borders. People talk about terrorists coming across. People talk about, uh, sometimes Drugs. people cross borders and brought in certain kinds of just diseases and mm-hmm. sicknesses. I mean, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. every government should be able to protect their borders. But when I look in scripture, I see a lot of immigration happening, not exactly like today because of the difference in nation states. But you think about Abraham, you look at Moses, you look at Jesus. The Bible is a story of movement and kindness and care for those around us. So since I'm writing this for students, I'm just asking students a question. Hey, are there people around you who have immigrated? How do you show love to them? Because they are your neighbors. The politics aside, and I'm not saying that's unimportant, I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that at all, but in writing to students, say, you know, wherever you land, there are immigrants among us. And here's some of the challenges that they face. How could you show love to a classmate who's an immigrant? Mm. That's the way I'm trying to personalize this for students. So check the book out, ladies and gentlemen. It's got so many great chapters in it. They're short, they're succinct, they get right to the point on so many issues. Great for parents, great for young people. It's called A Rebel's Manifesto, Choosing Truth, Real Justice and Love Amid the Noise of Today's World. Also check out Sean's a podcast. It's called Think Biblically with Sean McDowell, and his website is seanmcdowell.org. And Sean, I know you're speaking somewhere soon. Tell people where you're going to be. Oh, gosh, I have so many things coming up. I don't even remember, but you can see my speaking schedule on my website. But if people want to track me, the other thing, too, is my YouTube channel, Frank. I've had uh-huh. some cool shows on have. the Exodus 
Uh-huh. I've got some atheists coming on where we're just going to have a conversation. Good. Like you, I cover the just the top ethical issues. Doing one coming up soon on suicide. What happens to a Christian? Right. You know, can a Christian commit suicide? So dealing with the issues we talked about today there as well. Thank you so much, Sean. That's Sean McDowell, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, go to his YouTube channel. He does some great conversations with skeptics and atheists there. He, he always handles himself very well. Check all that out. It's a great example for the rest of us. Thanks, Sean. You bet. That's Sean McDowell, ladies and gentlemen. Don't forget, I'll be at Arise Church in Brandon, Florida, August 26th and 27th for the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation. We'll take a lot of Q&A as well. Then the Sunday services. And go to crossexamine.org. Click on resources, apologetics curriculum. We got it for every grade level now. The I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist method for every grade level. Check it out there. See you here next week, Lord willing. God bless.